A very good Sunday morning to each of you, and welcome to GodsRedeemed.org, the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We're located on 2191 Pitts Lane, and we'd love to have you join us for our Sunday morning worship at 1030. We are always glad to have our listeners from Facebook as well, and we thank you for joining us here on uh, either the website or Facebook. We're looking at the epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth after he had laid the foundation for the church there on his second missionary journey. He labored with them, you remember, for about a year and a half, and he's writing them now because just as he was concerned about those who were laying the foundation were not doing a good job. The materials that they were using were not strong and would not stand the test uh, that was before them. So Paul is helping them both by, as in today, answering some letters that they had written uh, concerning questions they had about different things. And he's also writing them uh, concerning some things he's been told. For instance, uh, as we looked at the first four chapters, Paul was talking about uh, those who uh, were divided at the church of Corinth. They were Some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, some were following Cephas, and they had based that on their oratory, as you know, uh, in those days. Greek oratory was something that was looked up uh, to by man as being something that was wonderful and uh, one who had a great mastery for that uh, was well revered. And what had happened in their uh, looking up to such things is they had disregarded the message. They had not listened to it closely and they had forgotten many of the things that Paul had taught them when he was there. Last week, we talked about litigation and fornication. There was a problem with morality here at uh, Corinth. In chapter 5, we looked at the problem of one brother who was living with his father's wife uh, in incest, that such a thing, Paul says, was not even known among the Gentiles. It was forbidden by the law, and rather than nip this in the bud, uh, the church at Corinth had simply allowed it to continue on, and they'd become puffed up about it. In chapter 6, uh, we looked at this problem last week of brother taking brother to court. Taking one another to uh, public court is something that would cause shame and embarrassment, both to the people involved as well as the congregation. And simply, the church at Corinth had a problem with fornication. And it had come as a result of some of the Gnostics who had taught that the mind and the spirit were two separate things, mind and the body, that whatever the body did in the flesh had no uh, effect on the mind or the spirit. And so, therefore, fornication was being not only allowed, but condoned, and it was continuing on in the church, and it, too, causing a great deal of problems. And so Paul has already talked to them that in the uh, matters of immorality and public sin, that it needs to uh, be addressed, and he 
gave them uh, the format in which it should be uh, conducted church discipline should be done in the name of the Lord and after uh, one has refused to repent and uh, repent uh, again uh, before the uh, two or three witnesses that it should be brought before the church that the church should be made aware of it and that they should understand that they too may suffer discipline as well but the church discipline as we stressed and as Paul stressed was for the sinner's soul. It was not to uh, for reprisal or anything uh, as revenge, but it was out of a deep love for the one's soul that through godly repentance, uh, it would br uh, godly sorrow rather, it would bring about repentance. And that's why church discipline is so important. They had a problem with this brother going uh, to court with another brother. And we said, we don't really understand what uh, the matter was about, but they had caused a great deal of shame and embarrassment. And Paul says, you should never take another brother to court. It's shameful. It's shameful for the person who's brought into court. And you can imagine if you were brought into court and things were said about you, uh, how unsettling it would be, how shameful you would feel. And certainly those who uh, looked at this as the church not being able to settle its own disputes, as brothers who claimed to love each other and brothers who claimed uh, to, that they could work things out for themselves, and here they were going to court, uh, it would bring a great deal of shame to the congregation. And so he told them they needed to find wise people in their congregation to settle these differences, people who had had experience in maybe some of the same things going on in the situation people who were either elders or people who were wise in age or experience who could sit down with the two parties and listen to them, explain the situation, present evidence, and then make a decision and become sort of a binding arbitrator uh, that whatever this wise person, uh, based on what he'd heard and what he knew and the evidence that he had seen, uh, to make the decision and both parties to follow that decision and keep it within the congregation. It's the heart that causes people to take other people to court. It is either a desire for more money or more property or uh, other carnal things that Paul says is dangerous. It's not the spirit that Christians should have. We don't want to cause one another to stumble. We don't want to cause one another uh, to be tempted. Paul gave us a long list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Some of those were murderers. Some of them were homosexuals, thieves. Some of them were sexually immoral, adulterers. But in giving that list of people that will not inherit heaven, Paul said some of them, uh, you were some of them. Some of those people listed were you. But what happened? You heard the word. You believed. You repented of those sins. You changed your ways. 
You confessed Jesus Christ and entered into baptism. You came up out of the water putting that old man to death. Coming up out of the water, you put on Christ. And he reminded them that they need to do that, to not go back to their old ways. And one of the things that they were contending with, as we said, because of this Gnostic attitude, uh, was fornication. And he said, you need to flee fornication. You remember we used the uh, example of Joseph when he was tempted by Potter's, uh, Potiphar's wife that she continually asked him uh, to lay with her. And finally, Joseph said, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? And he ran away. She caught a part of his garment to use for false witness later. But rather than succumb to this temptation, Joseph ran away from her. And that's what we need to do and what they needed to do. Because the body is for the Lord. The body was created by our Father for wonderful things. David said it's wonderfully made. And our body, as it is made, is created for doing wonderful things, for uh, loving, for helping, for working, for doing all sorts of things. It's not for fornication, though. Fornication is one of those things that Paul says uh, hurts our body. It hurts us. And you can think of diseases and uh, situations brought about by fornication that can be truly uh, deadly or dangerous for us. The body wasn't meant to succumb to all of our uh, sexual uh, desires or pleasures or desires that we may have inside to use our bodies for. It was made to be a temple and for us to join ourselves members of Christ to a harlot, is despicable. It is just a shame. And especially when we understand that this body is the temple, but it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, who was given to us as a gift as we came up out of the water to reside in our hearts, to lead us, to guide us, to help us with understanding, and to keep us walking in the light. And so therefore, to contaminate the temple, to desecrate the temple, is just a shame. So therefore, as Paul says, the Christians should flee fornication. Any doctrine that encourages an indulgence of the flesh is contrary to Christianity. And you remember that we uh, reminded ourselves that John, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uses the term Antichrist five times. Antichrist is never used as some sort of mystical monster who's going to appear on the world scene just before the coming of Jesus Christ. But it's a heart, it's a mind, it's an attitude that Christ did not come in the flesh, that we can do as we please in the body and our spirit or our souls not be affected. And that is simply all against what Christ has said to us. So today, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to uh, begin there answering questions about marriage. This is lesson 6, 
and we're going to talk about marriage. I, I don't think there's uh, another chapter that has been more debated over the subject of uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But Paul here is going to talk to the Corinthians about the questions that they asked him in this letter that was sent to them. In uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man uh, not to uh, have sexual relations with a woman. And what he's saying there is, uh, these are some matters you asked a question about in the letter that you sent, and it's good for a man not to touch uh, a woman. And when we see this uh, phrase now concerning, it, it uh, is concerning uh, letters that they have written to Paul, and we see this phrase in not only chapter 7, uh, but uh, verse 25 of chapter 7, and the first verse in each uh, chapter 8, chapter 12, and chapter 16. So this first question that Paul asks concerns marriage. And it's not easy to understand exactly how the question was phrased or what it is, but most likely, uh, judging uh, from the context, the most reasonable explanation might point to this Christian asceticism that uh, talked about abstaining from sexual relations in marriage uh, or breaking existing marriage. And so we'll discuss that a little bit later as we come uh, towards the end of the chapter. Uh, as we said, this is a very uh, disputed chapter uh, when we're talking about marriage and divorce. And I want us to uh, ensure that if we don't understand you, uh, be sure to uh, look at the PowerPoint slides uh, again and remind ourselves uh, that uh, Paul is encouraging marriage. He's not saying it's a sin for those who are unmarried, uh, but he's talking about uh, marriage in times of persecution. He says, first of all, there in the first seven verses, that abstinence is not commonplace in marriage, nor uh, should it be. Abstinence, uh, refraining from sexual activity between man and wife, uh, is okay, but Paul gives certain limitations on it. In verse 2, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. He talks about the authority that man does not have over his body, but his wife has. And the wife, not the authority that she has over her body, but that which the husband has in the marriage relationship. What he says about abstinence in verse 5 is, don't deprive one another except by agreement. So if the husband and wife agree that we're going to, as he says, devote ourselves to prayer, and we're going to get rid of those things, as in fasting, that might cause our minds to stray away from the praying that we're doing to God, he says, you need to do that, but then come back together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What he says 
is not a commandment in the latter part of verse 6, but a concession, or here, here's some advice. It's not a command, but some advice. I say this in verse 7. I wish all were as I am. Paul had the ability to control his body, and he uh, had chosen to remain uh, single. But Paul says, I, although I do wish everybody was like me, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind or of another. So some people are able to control their bodies uh, when it comes to passion, and some are not. So when he says it's good for someone, for a man not to touch a woman, what's he saying? Doesn't mean that he's saying marriage is sinful. Not by any stretch of the imagination, but we have to go back and remember it was God who ordained marriage. Do you remember Genesis 2 there in verse 18 through 24, which is read at many weddings? And we've, we talk about that a, a lot as we go back into the Old Testament and look at the very beginning. Marriage is not a lesser good than celibacy. The Catholics say that, but it's not. The writer of Hebrews in verse 13 and verse 4 tells us to let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Paul later says in Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 23, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And he goes on talking about the love that husbands need to have for their wives, to keep them spotless and blemish-free, holy, without spot or wrinkle. And they should love their wives as Christ loves the church. He gave his life for her. He loves her. He cherishes her. And he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, in verse 29. And so, therefore, we're all members of his body. And this mystery is profound. It refers to Christ and his church, but it refers to the relationship that man and wife have with each other. So in verse 33, he says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. To forgive or to forbid marriage is simply a mark of apostasy, as Paul told Timothy in chapter 4 of 1st uh, Timothy. He says to Timothy, who's going back to Ephesus, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the reason that it was good not to touch a woman has to relate to this present distress that they were in, not to a lesser moral good. So, to avoid fornication, Paul says, every man should have his own wife and every wife her own husband. 
in order to keep moral purity. Each wife and each husband is to render to the other due benevolence, or that which is owed of their conjugality. Are there conjugal duties, Thayer says, and the English Standard Version says, this sexual relationship is not just to satisfy the husband's passions or his uh, desires. Paul understands that both have these desires uh, and they both have equal, equal rights. Each mate has a responsibility to share uh, in order to uh, meet these needs in each other, to satisfy their sexual passions. Uh, he goes through and tells that each mate has this power over the other's body, that is, the husband over the wife and the wife over the husband, and it emphasizes this obligation that we as husbands have of, to our wives and wives to us to satisfy each other sexually. He forbids us to defraud the other of his sexual rights. When we look at marriage and uh, the marriage bed, marriage without sexual cohabitation is just not normal. It's not healthy. It's not wholesome. So when we abstain uh, during this period of time that Paul talks about for prayer, uh, it has to be by mutual consent. In other words, both the husband and wife say, okay, uh, let us go to God in prayer and pray about these certain things that may be needed in marriage or may be needed on behalf of someone else. But we're going to God in prayer and in doing so, just like we fast, uh, we're going to put carnality out of our hearts. We're going to remove things that might tempt us uh, in our prayers. And so we have, we mutually agree that we're going to pray and we're going to abstain from uh, our passions. But Paul says it should be for a short time. It shouldn't be for a long period of time because otherwise, uh, if we abstain from uh, meeting each other's needs, then Satan may step in the picture. And when he steps in the picture, he's going to use that uh, to drive a wedge between us and carry us away, maybe to commit fornication or maybe even adultery. So Paul didn't command this period of sexual abstinence, but he is permitting it here. He's not saying we have to uh, have periods of time where we go to prayer uh, throughout our marriage, but he says if there comes times like that and you both agree to it, then by all means do it but come back together. He said, this is a concession, uh, English Standard Version. It's a concession to you. It is my advice to you. It's not a commandment uh, that he says that. He says, I wish everybody was like me, but each has its own, his own gift, one uh, kind of another. The second point is, Paul gives instructions to the unmarried and the widows there in verses eight through nine. Now, the unmarried uh, will include both male and female. They could be unmarried because uh, they've never been married, or they could be uh, the products of a divorce for fornication. And the instructions there given to the unmarried uh, would contradict 
those given in Matthew 19.9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if that uh, divorce was for fornication, the only reason uh, divorce is accepted by God, uh, it could be applying to them. Or someone simply could be widowed or a widower. Uh, they're a special group of the unmarried, and Paul advised that they remain unmarried. If you look at 1 Timothy again in chapter 5, another instruction that Paul gave to Timothy was that he would that children, uh, younger women marry and bear children to guide the house and give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So this is different. But I think Paul is saying to remain unmarried uh, is different here because of the present circumstances uh, or the present distress mentioned in verse 26, which uh, I think caused Paul to say this, that everybody who's unmarried stay that way. And in his advice for many not to marry, Paul was just giving his advice. It wasn't a commandment as some have taken that uh, wrongfully and used it wrongfully to prevent marriage. And so therefore, he says, those that are unmarried, if you lack self-control, if your passions are getting the best of you, then you need to marry. You need to marry so that you don't sin. You don't need to marry, uh, stay unmarried uh, to keep these passions from getting out of hand. It's better, he says in verse 9, to marry than to burn with lust. The third point Paul has is giving instructions to those who are married to Christians. For some, this is a difficult passage. And there are many who are married to unbelievers, and there are uh, those I always uh, remembered uh, growing up and seeing some of the members of our congregation when I was little. Uh, the wife would come and the husband would go to uh, his congregation and pick her up uh, after uh, the services. And it was always uh, painful to me to wonder why they, if they love each other, why didn't they worship together? But Paul continues uh, here talking to those who are married to Christians and those who are married to unchristians. And he contrasts uh, what he's going to say on his apostolic authority and what God has revealed through uh, to him through Christ while he was on the earth. So if you look at Christ's uh, talk uh, and teaching about divorce and remarriage, he has a good deal to say in Matthew 5 and 19, Mark 10 and Luke 16 and verse 18. Uh, leaving out the parenthetical statements, the basic instructions are this. To the unmarried, Paul says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart. So to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Each is to abide in the calling in which he was called. So the parenthetical statement would be, but and if, okay, there's a but and there's an if, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried 
or be reconciled to her husband. She's got two choices. If he leaves her, and this is not for fornication, but if he leaves her because she's a Christian, then she needs to remain unmarried or she can be reconciled to her husband. In the event that a wife does depart or divorce her husband and can't be reconciled to him, she must remain unmarried. And Jesus said in Matthew, the ninth chapter in verse nine, if she marries another, she'll be guilty of adultery. Fourthly, Paul gives instructions during this present distress to those who are married to non-Christians from verses 11 through 16. Paul looks at those who are married, some to unbelievers, others uh, he addresses, uh, but he now turns to what wasn't addressed by Jesus. And this issue of intermarriage is the same one that was raised in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the children of God, uh, married to some of those in the lands that they were uh, held in bondage to. They had had children. If you go over and read Malachi's account, some of these children could not even speak the language of their father. So there were problems with discipline. There was problem uh, with idolatry. There were all kinds of problems because of this intermarriage. The children of God married the children who were not children of God. So in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, these, these marriages quite simply were unscriptural. And those involved in them, you can go back and look at Ezra and Nehemiah, and you can also look at Malachi. Much to their grief and much to some of their uh, horror, had to put their wives and children away. They could have nothing to do with them. Well, Jesus never addressed the circumstance of whether or not a Christian could marry, uh, be married to a non-Christian with divine approval. That's nowhere found that I can find in, in Christ's teaching. And so for that reason, I think Paul gives revelation on the subject uh, here in chapter 7. The instructions for the Christian who may be married to the non-Christian are identical to those Christians who are married to Christians. And what Paul says is, if any brother, there in verses 12 through 3, if any brother has a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which has a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So there's nothing in this passage that would tell us that divorce is okay for any reason and that remarriage is okay for any reason. But rather, they need to keep their marriage together. The reason given for keeping the marriage together uh, goes back again to Ezra and Nehemiah, for there it's written, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they're holy, Paul says there. In what sense are the unbelieving husband and children sanctified or set apart? Well, they're not saved on the basis that their father's a Christian or their mother's a Christian. But what the text is teaching that is that the marriage, in the marriage, the children are holy 
to the Lord. There's no biblical basis to break up that marriage because one is a Christian and one is not. They're to make every attempt to keep that marriage together. And Paul later on gives the advice that uh, those who are married to an unbeliever are to live their lives as an example to them that one day uh, they may be convinced, but it's not sure. But whatever the case, we need to continue to live Christian lives. And many people look at verse uh, 15 and see uh, things that simply aren't there. Some think Paul has given the second reason for divorce that allows this person a right to get married again. They call it the Pauline privilege. Uh, and it's simply not there. The text says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in some cases, but God has called us to peace, verse 15. Look at these points with me. Let's make sure we understand what the context says. It says they have a mate who leaves his mate because he is a Christian. So this context doesn't give anyone the right to remarry because they've been divorced because she's a Christian. We have to respect what the context says. The context is limited to someone who leaves their mate because he or she is a Christian. There's nothing in that context that mentions remarriage. It doesn't say anything about remarriage. And so if we want to apply this uh, to divorce for any and every occasion, uh, then we ignore what the context says. There's nothing there that mentions remarriage. A person is not free to remarry when they desert him, when they divorce him. And if you do that, if you read that, that it's okay to do that, then you've read into scripture what is simply not there. So looking at the text, uh, the believer is not responsible to maintain a marriage that the unbeliever does not wish to continue. If he wants to leave, Paul says, let him or her go. She should let him go, not forcing herself upon him against his will. You know, you can't force someone to love you. And so therefore, if he doesn't love you and he doesn't want to be a part of this marriage anymore because you're a Christian, Paul says, let him go. She's not under bondage in such cases. And this word under bondage is translated from a Greek word uh, that means to make a slave of or to reduce to bondage. And it's not the same as dio, which means bind in verse 39 to refer to the marriage bond. But this other Greek word, and I won't try to pronounce it, uh, indicates that she's not now or ever been under bondage or enslaved to her husband. So verse 16, we go down to that verse, says that she shouldn't try to hold her marriage together. Sometimes people try to do that in vain, hoping that uh, the unbeliever will uh, come back, that he'll change, that one day he's going to uh, see the light and be a Christian. Well, you may live a godly life and present a good example your entire life. And your mate uh, may never 
obey the word of God. But that doesn't change your responsibilities or my responsibilities. But it also doesn't mean that because we do that, because we follow God's word, our influence is going to take hold on the other. So a Christian should never live in vain hope of something that may never occur. The fifth thing that Paul addresses is to stay in the calling in which you were called, verse 17 through 24. There's a tendency for uh, some Christians uh, to think that they can't, uh, shouldn't stay in their marriages, that they should uh, leave them, and it's for a variety of reasons. But Paul emphasizes that Christians need to stay in their marriages, and he uses two illustrations uh, to show this. The first one is circumcision, and he's talking about uh, remaining in uh, where you were called. It's applied to things that are morally right. That is, God does not teach men to abide in sin. We have to change. We have to become a new creature. We have to put on Christ. And so the text here is teaching that whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're slave or free, you need to stay in the same condition you were when you were called. Uh, read the book of uh, Philemon. Read the passages that Paul talks about in relationships of bond to free, of servant to master, of circumcised and uncircumcised. Well, let's talk about circumcision first. There were, according to historians, uh, surgeries that could be formed on people who had been circumcised who, for some reason or another, wanted to go back to being uncircumcised. Well, they could do that, but it wasn't a very uh, profitable surgery. It gave the appearance uh, that someone had been uncircumcised and they could uh, perform this. Uh, it was probably very painful and, and useless. Uh, but what Paul is teaching here is uh, if you were circumcised because you were Jewish, uh, remain circumcised. If you're uncircumcised because you were Greek, remain uncircumcised. There's no need uh, to go back and unchange either because neither means anything in Christ. Uh, we have to walk with the ability that we have been called in, whether it be the physical appearance or the outward appearance of circumcision or uncircumcision, whether it may, means our situation in life, whether we are uh, bond or free, uh, rich or poor, uh, whatever physical attributes may tend to uh, bind ourselves with the old law, we need to forget because in Christ there's neither bond nor free and uh, circumcision means nothing. So in whatever fashion you were called, you need to remain that way. Those things are no more. Look at what he says in Galatians 5 and verse 6. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What does count? Only faith working through love. For he says in uh, chapter 6 and verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But what matters is this new creation that you have become. Uh, 
And everybody, verse 20, needs to remain in whatever state you are called. Same thing's true with slavery. If a man is a slave, uh, he should recognize that he's the Lord's free man. He's free to uh, teach uh, the word of God and uh, worship God. Uh, if a man is free, he should remember that he is now a slave. Uh, both are free and both are slaves, both servant and freedmen, uh, because they were both bought with a price, the price of Jesus Christ's death. But if a servant has the opportunity to become a free man, he should use that freedom uh, to glory God. Verse 21. So Paul closes this section again by uh, charging that the Corinthians need to abide in whatever calling they were called and be happy with that, to use their new creature status, to learn, to grow, to teach, and to glorify. Sixth point, Paul writes in answering this letter regarding uh, virgins and widows. And he uses a phrase, uh, now concerning, indicates uh, this uh, answer to the question that they had answered or had asked Paul and the question that they sent to them. And Paul didn't have an apostolic commandment to give them uh, because this pertains uh, to judgment pertaining to virgins and to widows. But he's determined to give his judgment as one who obtained, had obtained mercy uh, of the Lord in verse 25. He talks about this present distress. And again, I believe as I read this and elsewhere that this present distress is the persecution that's coming upon the Christians here in Corinth. It's just conjecture. Uh, but listen to what he says in chapter 15 and verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Just like Jesus warned uh, those in Jerusalem about the destruction that was coming, that they would suffer and their suffering would be intense, but it would especially uh, be difficult for those who were pregnant and those who had small children. And you can imagine that time of war when you're wanting to flee and run away. It's hard to uh, do that quickly if you're pregnant. Uh, it's hard to do that if you have children trying to protect them and trying to carry them or having them uh, try to keep up as uh, you're going fast. And so his advice to uh, these, this group here is different than he gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 14. Over there, he said, for uh, the widows, the young widows especially, uh, he would have them marry and bear children and manage their households uh, and not give the adversary any occasion for slander. So the only reason we can look at this as being uh, different from what he commanded Paul uh, was that there is a present distress that is causing a great deal of difficulty, probably uh, persecution. And so his advice is the same that was spoken in the first verse. It's good for a man so to be. 
A person bound to his wife shouldn't seek to be free, and those who are loosed from a wife shouldn't seek to find a wife because of the persecution, because of the trouble that's coming upon them. However, one should understand this verse 28. If you are going to marry, you haven't sinned by any means. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. He says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Paul loves them. He doesn't want them to go through the trouble that being married, having children, uh, is going to cause during this time of persecution. Usually they separated families, sold the children or uh, wives or husbands into bondage. Uh, they would imprison them separately. It's very difficult for those husbands and wives to say goodbye to children and to, to mates. But he says, I want to spare you from this trouble. I want to spare you from the difficulties of undergoing these things uh, with a spouse whom you love very much and children you love very much. In verse 29, Paul says that the time is short, but he didn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that he believed that Jesus, uh, Jesus was coming anytime soon, uh, nor was Judgment Day imminent. But what he's saying is this tribulation, this period of persecution is going to be short. You remember back in Matthew, the 24th chapter, when Jesus uh, was answering the question that he had been asked of uh, when these things would come, and he describes uh, those things that would indicate the destruction of Jerusalem is coming uh, pretty soon. But he says there in Matthew 24 and verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And as we know from history, uh, in 70 AD, as the destruction of Jerusalem came about, the general Titus was called back uh, to uh, Rome and therefore uh, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, was uh, shortened. So Jesus and Paul uh, have such a love for uh, their brethren that they're encouraging, encouraging them in light of the persecution that's coming. Don't hurry to enter into a marriage. Don't hurry to have children. Don't uh, hurry to become remarried because those sorts of things have their own difficulty uh, in life. He says in verses 30 through 31 that they need to learn to live without a wife unless they can't help it because of uh, not being able to control their passions. Then they need to marry so that they don't burn with lust. The point is that Christians don't need to be uh, become too attached to the world. This world has a lot of things that catch our attention. This world has a lot of things uh, that we'd like to have and to amass uh, and hoard. But 
the explanation that Paul gives is the fashion or the outward form of this world is passing away. The world is going to come to an end one day, and we're not going to take anything with us. None of the power we've, we've uh, uh, formed, none of the uh, money and silver and gold that we've amassed, none of the stocks and bonds. The world is constantly changing. And we don't know when our destruction is coming as a nation. We don't know when the persecution or our time uh, of distress will come either. But Paul is trying to do everything he can to encourage and to protect the Christians from being overly attached to this world and adding to that uh, anxieties and troubles that uh, Newly formed marriages, uh, reformed marriages, and marriages in general may put on them. The unmarried are free to give themselves totally to the Lord. And that's why Paul says, I wish you were as I am. Sometimes uh, difficulties and struggles with children and wives pull on us and we don't always fulfill uh, our responsibilities to God fully. Uh, we become divided and we're concerned not only for God, but also how to please our wives or how to please our husbands. And the unmarried can face persecutions easier probably than the married, married ones. And I know that's hard to say. Persecution is hard and difficult. And when you look at Roman persecution later on uh, as the... Uh, killings and the tortures uh, began, it may seem hard to fathom. But Paul wanted to help them to ease their minds and reduce all of the weights on them during this time. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what we should all uh, seek to do. But in, in marriage and in the marriage relationship, we both need to give God our all, and we both need to take care of each other, too. That's a difficult thing to do. It's easy to say, but it's difficult to do. And he says, if anyone thought he was behaving, misbehaving himself uh, towards his virgin, he should allow her to marry. If the maiden is passing the flower of her age and she needs to get married, she doesn't have the gift of celibacy then she should be allowed to marry. But the one who has self-control, the gift of celibacy, and in his mind, he says, I'm going to stay unmarried. He's done better in the sense that he's able to give himself more uh, to God, and his sufferings won't be as great in this present distress. Look at what he says in verse 37 and 38. But whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from his marriage will do even better. Finally, Paul turns to the widows, and he makes the statement that the widow is bound by the law to her mate as long as he lives. And if the husband dies, then she's free to marry, but there's the limitation only in the Lord, and I think we must understand that to mean 
to be a Christian. So what is Paul saying? Why would he limit this remarriage to being a Christian uh, and not being able to marry someone else? Well, some people have offered explanations and there are others out there, but I think the one most reasonable is to consider the context of this present distress, which is the underlying problem here in chapter seven. After giving the right to remarriage, Paul advises the widow like he has the others, that their life would be less complicated if she would stay single. It would. And Paul is, again, not saying that she uh, must uh, not remarry, but if she does, it needs to be a Christian, someone whom they can depend on each other, someone whom they can support and get through this difficult time. I hope you've enjoyed uh, our study today. I hope it's been understandable. I hope it has brought some light into a difficult chapter and a difficult subject. Paul, again, uh, gives his opinions, but he also gives his apostolic revelation uh, and to a wide variety of people considering marriage, becoming engaged, those whose husbands or wives have left them because they're Christians, those whose husbands have died, and he's given them insight in regard to carefully considering themselves before entering into marriage or remarriage because of this present distress that is overtaking uh, the Christians in this area. And pretty soon it will sweep wide over the Roman Empire and it will become more and more brutal and devastating. But in the end, God wins. And so do God's children when they remain steadfast, when they remain pure in heart, and when God is at the center of their lives. Again, I hope you've enjoyed this lesson. Feel free to uh, make comments, ask your questions by all means, and make corrections if I've spoken anything amiss or that is not understood. Be assured you'll be my friend and I will love you for your desire that my soul and my, uh, be saved and that my tongue speak God's truth whenever it wags out of my head. <laughs> Sometimes it does that. And so I need your prayers as I pray for you. Hope to see you next week, God willing.